does it mean if we don't make it count today? Pass the George Floyd Act. Don't let it be for nothing. Pass the George Floyd Act. Let's make it count today. Pass the George Floyd Act. It's time to stand for something. Pass the George Floyd Act. It's time to have our say. Hello, boys and girls. This is Scott Henson with Just Liberty. I'm here today with our good friend Mandy Marzullo. And after a hiatus last fall, we're relaunching the Reasonably Suspicious podcast with a special multi-part episode examining various aspects of the proposed Texas George Floyd Act. The music we're listening to is from a radio ad created by Just Liberty to promote the Texas George Floyd Act. It was produced by Gabe Rhodes with Jonathan Horseman on vocals and the great John Mills on horns. Last summer, the nation erupted in protest after Houston native George Floyd was killed by a Minneapolis police officer who kneeled on his neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds while George told him, I can't breathe. Tens of thousands of Texans in large towns and small took to the streets, including more than 60,000 people at the largest protest in Houston. In response to this national uprising, the Texas George Floyd Act was filed by Representative Symphonia Thompson. This bill is an omnibus piece of police reform legislation that includes a duty to intervene for officers who witness misconduct, a duty to provide aid when someone is injured in their custody, and establishes a meaningful cause of action that allows Texans to sue when their rights are violated. We spoke to Representative Thompson and asked her why she bought this legislation. Anyone who watched what happened in Minnesota would say that they, as they said then, it was a horrific crime. Uh, it was a murder that was broadcast all over the country and all over the world. And people responded to that uh, conduct through protests, uh, through podcasts, um, all sorts of things, because it, it shocked the consciousness of people that we had persons who we hire, hire as our protector to keep the law who was in fact breaking the law in that capacity. And so this bill is a response to the people outcry. You've worked around the Capitol a long time, Amanda, on different issues that impact policies uh, in reforming police activities. And we have been trying to get these kind of bills passed. And this is now the forum uh, because of the support of the people, the groundswell of the people, that we believe that this is the time that we can do something about police brutality in communities of color that has happened so long uh, before George Floyd death. And most of the legislation that is within the George Floyd Act isn't new. What we really want to do is to be able to shape those policies so that we would have not only the people of our country in our communities, in our states following the law, but the people who enforce the law to also follow the law. And when they step outside of the boundaries of those laws, then they have to be accountable just like everyone else. We don't want to keep people believing that they are persons who are above the law. Floyd Act. 
We thought we'd start by discussing an element of the George Floyd Act that reprises a suggestion omitted from Texas Sandra Bland Act when it was passed in 2017, a prohibition on arresting drivers at traffic stops for Class C misdemeanors, which is currently legal under Texas law. Here's how State Representative Sinfronia Thompson described this class of offenses. Class C arrests really are those kinds of arrests that should be ticketed offenses. And people usually don't spend time in jail behind them. They usually pay, pay fines. Nobody, you didn't have your seatbelt on. Or you have a, a, a light, a headlight that is out. Or you didn't stop for a stop sign. You know, no, you know nobody, no one is injured. No one is killed. Uh, and those should be those kind of offenses that, that a citizen gets a ticket and, and sent on his way. Mm-hmm. Had that happened in the Sandra Bland case because she forgot to give a signal when she made a turn, uh, she would be alive today. And we want to make sure that there won't be other Sandra Blands. There won't be other uh, arrests, uh, made lockers where people will be put in perils of their life and lose it. And that police officers don't spend all of their time trying to arrest someone and carry them to jail and utilize facilities like the jail to put the put in place put in a jail these kinds of offenses when there may be other more serious offenses that are happening and we're running out of space for those persons to be locked up. In 2019, more than 64,000 Texans were arrested at traffic stops for Class C misdemeanors, according to law enforcement data reported to the Texas Commission on Law Enforcement. That's half again more people than were arrested for marijuana possession that, that year. In December, an episode out of Keller, Texas, in Tarrant County, made national headlines illustrating exactly the type of situation the George Floyd Act aims to avoid. Mandy has been digging into the details of this case, so tell us what happened. Okay. Um, well, a lot. <laughs> um, I, I think that, you know, this is a really layered interaction and a good example of how implicit bias can play out so that, you know, someone's rights are violated for what ends up being a red herring. So just to give you some context, Dylan Puente, who's, you know, young. 18 years old, I believe. 18 years old. So, right, you know, quite young, is driving in his hometown on a hot August day with the windows rolled down. While he's driving, apparently he made a wide right turn and is pulled over for it. He obviously stops immediately. And as the law enforcement officer is approaching him, he calls for backup and then makes a big deal about how Dylan had rolled his window up three quarters of the way. Um, He immediately knocks on it and kind of goes from zero to 60 in the interaction. So I think it'd be good for the listeners just to hear this one tidbit. So let's give it a listen. Uh 320, go ahead and send me a unit when you got available. Hey, roll your window back down. What's that? My name is Sergeant Schmott, the Co-Police Department. Green is being stopped today. He made a wide right turn. He turned from 1709 to 377. Any reason why you're rolling your window up when I walk up to this car? No, sir. You had been driving it down for the past mile. I just rolled it up. All right, step out of the car for me. Step out. You not shut that window. Open it now. Step out. Right here. Face that direction. Face that direction. Put your hands right here behind your back. Don't move. You understand? Why are you acting so suspicious? 
Well, what, you're on your window up, and I'm walking up on scene for a routine traffic stop. Ain't nothing going on. You're on your window up. What does that look like to me? I mean, I'm just rolling it up because I, for my safety. For your safety? Yeah. Nothing. I rolled up hey, my window. Take off. That's my dad. Oh, sir. Yeah. I rolled, I rolled up my window. 320, give me a unit code now. And he got mad because I rolled up my window. At that point is what you're probably hearing. You know, Dylan at this point has been pulled out of the car. He's been cuffed and his father drives by. And obviously, you know, you hear the officer tell, you know, tell Mr. Puente to pull over or he'd be arrested for blocking the roadway, which obviously sounds extreme. But then the father complies. You know, he pulls over parks his car and then begins videotaping and you can see this from the if you watch the body camera footage but from the other side of the street right it should be mentioned that in no way when you watch the video and this is all available online on youtube in no way is the father blocking the roadway at all he is pulled up at the curb on the other side of the street he it's a very wide residential street He's a long way away, really, from the police officer and, and everything that's happening with his son. And so it's really a spurious allegation from the moment that it's made. Yeah. And, and also Dylan has, you know, the officer is saying that Dylan is behaving suspiciously and being a bit hostile, but he isn't. He complied with everything the officer asked him to do. You know, when he was told to roll his window down, he rolled his window down. There, there was no... Non-compliant. Yeah, That's exactly. Right. <laughs> you know, at that point, the patrol car that he had asked to come over had arrived. The law enforcement officer first tells the patrolman to watch the father and then instructs him to arrest him. And that's when like a really unfortunate altercation happens where both officers end up sort of attacking Mr. Puente, cuffing him and pepper spraying him for reasons that don't seem to make any sense because there was no scuffle or resistance. I've got this on video. This guy's arresting me for just standing here. And now he's taking my phone away. Dude, dude, oh my God. Dude, dude, dude. He wasn't resisting. They they just manhandled him. And in fact, they really pepper sprayed him twice. They did it the first time. And then after the cuffs were on and he was sort of thoroughly under their control, the officer reached back down with the pepper spray and sort of put his hand, his hand at an angle so it would get in between his, his sunglasses and in, into his eyes and sprayed him again in a very punitive fashion. And totally unnecessary, totally after the cuffs are 100% on and he's fully under their control. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't it, it doesn't make any sense. At this point, there actually is sort of a bystander who's, you know, a voice of reason who shows up and starts videoing Marco Puente's arrest and, say, you know, and is saying this is horseshit. This doesn't make any sense. And, you know, calling them out for their like clearly excessive force. At that point, you also hear 
from that point going forward, Mr. Puente talking about the burning in his eyes and repeatedly asking for a towel, um, which they never give him. Well, in fact, they explicitly denied it to him, didn't they? Yeah, no. Later on, you know, you, um, I, I believe a medic who arrives on the scene asks the law enforcement officer if, if he has a towel. And he, the response is, not for him. Um, you can detox him at the jail. And so he's, instructions are explicitly given <laughs> to um, the folks on the scene to refuse to render aid. Let's listen to that. Just to put a pin on it. <laughs> uh, do you have a towel or anything? Oh, just no, not to give him. Okay. Just go ahead and hey, if he's trans, if he's been searched. Hey, who's she? Who's she? Okay, go ahead and take him to the jail. Get now. Wait, tell him we'll detox him at the jail. Get him to the jail. So, and it, I should note that throughout. You know, the next several minutes of the tape, you can hear Mr. Puente crying in the background. If you turn this, the volume up loud enough, you know, he's, his eyes are clearly burning. It sounds like it's getting worse and there is no medical care. And mean, now, meanwhile, back to his son. So, yeah. so, so the father so has been arrested. Did, you know, assaulted and, you know, you know, allowed to continue to suffer. His son at this point um, was also in handcuffs, but has the son been arrested yet? No, no, no. He's just detained. And what they do is like at first he's told to sit down on the curb. Then they move him to the back of the police car. He's still detained, but not arrested, cuffed in a police car with the door closed, which is really remarkable if you think about it. There is no way that he could open the door, but he's merely detained. He's not under arrest. Um, And at that point, the law enforcement officer starts asking Dylan for permission to search his car. So at this point, his Fourth Amendment rights are kind of like Schrodinger's cat. (laughs) Right. I mean, there's just this black box that his rights theoretically exist in, but they might actually already be dead, but he doesn't know yet. And he's just back there handcuffed in the, in the back of the police car. He may or may not be arrested. He may or may not be Mirandized. He may or may not. Yeah. I mean, all, I mean, if you think about it, like a whole host of Schrodinger's defendant. Yeah, no, no, they're all kind of in suspense. And it, it really shows how our system isn't compatible with reality, right? Like how the idea that he could ever consent or make, you know, a voluntary consent for someone to search his vehicle under those circumstances is ludicrous. But the cat is dead. <laughs> but he's still, but, you know, this is the reality that we're dealing with. And amazingly, Dylan says no. Like, I'd prefer that you don't. Um, Dylan, you're just going to keep dragging that dead cat around. It's like Tom Sawyer, you know. You're going to take that dead cat. Tom Sawyer was able to actually sell it off and 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 trade it in exchange for, for services rendered. I, I admire Dylan for that. Yeah, no, I, He's going to just take that dead cat and use it for all it's worth. I appreciate <laughs> it. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I really do appreciate it. He's also... I mean, I will say pretty charming under the circumstances, you know, like I, I thought he came across Very measured. Yeah. And kept his head when others were losing theirs about him. I mean, that was, yeah. I mean, the most he said, Kipling would have been proud. (laughs) Anyone would have been proud. I mean, the most he said was, you know, what you did to my dad was not 
not okay or not, not cool. Not cool, man. Not cool. Which is, you know, a, a bit of an understatement. Exactly. <laughs> you just saw his father. Dude, don't mace dad. That's, I mean, I get that. That's, yeah. That's, that, that's fair for him to object, I feel like. <laughs> And this is where you start to see both an evolving theory on the part of the arresting officer and where misinformation begins to be transmitted internally within the police department, which I think is both are significant. So on the theory front, after talking to Dylan, the arresting officer develops a theory that that there's marijuana in the car. And so he asks a colleague of his to stand near the car and see if he can smell marijuana. The narrator added, there was no (laughs) marijuana in the car. There was no, Dylan had said there was none, there was no smell. Um, And then it became narcotics. You know, that, if there's no marijuana, there still has to be something there, right? Added the narrator, there also were no narcotics. (laughs) But um, also you see sort of intersperse between interactions, between between interactions with Dylan, the arresting officer starts communicating to other officers what's happened as they're being called onto the scene. Yeah. And for the record, Dylan did great. Yeah. If, if my daughter had been pulled over unfairly and treated as badly as he was and you know, watched me or someone they loved get assaulted essentially by the police officers and kept their head as well as he did. I would be, I would be proud of them. He yeah. he did really well. No, he, he did. And and so did the dad. I mean, if you think about it, he sure. reacted very mild. I mean, the, I guess there's, it's not like he swung on them when they, when they arrested him under false pretenses, he just said, Hey, this is, bullshit and it kind of was yeah i mean i guess like the only thing about this conversation that i find frustrating is that if someone attacks you you should be able to respond to that right i mean and he was again yeah. it's a strange moment it it, is, the, the, these these are schrodinger's defendants they're they're put in a situation where in theory they've got rights in practice those rights are probably yeah. dead inside the box and some judge will make the decision, you know, months from now. But the reality is in the street, it doesn't matter. matter. The people with the, the handcuffs and the guns get to win. The cat is already dead. Okay. Yeah. And I guess like, so that's where it's like, I don't want to say that like Dylan was like, quote, I think that like it was extraordinary, right? Because anybody in his situation would want to respond and he didn't and the second piece that you see is sort of in between conversations with dylan the arresting officer is sort of giving information to other officers about what happened and you do see that he's lying Mm -hmm. so with the first conversation and someone pulls up he says i had you know with the father he kept you know interfering and walking in on my scene and and so I we had to struggle with him and arrest him when, when that clearly isn't what happened. The man was on the other side of the street, but sort of knew that he was out of line. And instead of sort of admitting that to his fellow officers, he's providing them with misinformation. So I think it's important to realize that sometimes bad actors are out there, but they're hard to be identified even within a single police department. And I also think this would not have ever come to light if it were not for the bystander video. Yeah. Um, you know, we 
created a law in Texas that makes all body cam video closed records. And so what we've seen is police departments do not release body cam video for the most part unless it really is beneficial to the department. And we, we we're going to talk in a moment about a, a rare example of that's counter that out of Plano. But usually we don't get access to body cam video unless it backs up the officer's story. Where we see these reform moments pop up is when there's bystander video. Yeah. And in this case, a neighbor walked out, saw what was happening, was videoing the whole thing, told him, you're going to be on the six o'clock news. And that all of a sudden brought the supervisors in. Everyone gets interested at that point. And pretty quick. Yeah. And so that was very interesting to me, too, that the body cam didn't seem to really be a deterrent for bad behavior. He knew that, that he would not be held to account just for that. It was the bystander video that yeah. that really made him realize, oh, wait a minute, I may have gone too far. <laughs> gone too someone, far. someone who might care has, has caught me doing this. Yeah. And then sort of like the last thing to pay attention to in the video is that ultimately there was a decision, you know, not only to detain Dylan, but to arrest him. And that's communicated to a higher up. And the rationale was explicitly to search and inventory his car. So, I mean, some listeners might know this, some might not. But even when there isn't probable cause to believe that somebody has, you know, drugs or narcotics in their car, which, let's be clear, did not apply to this situation. There was no spell. There was no odor. It wasn't as though Dylan was driving recklessly all over the street as though he was intoxicated or under the influence of some substance. The Supreme Court has ruled that if you arrest someone and you, you seize the car, you can search the car for purposes of making an inventory of what you have seized. And then that, if you find anything, it's admissible in court. So it's sort of an end run around the Fourth Amendment. And that's exactly what they did here. That was the rationale. It wasn't like they needed to arrest Dylan so that he wouldn't make another wide right-hand turn. Right. Because you can't have that on a street where no one is. This was about searching his vehicle. And that really was explicit, too. Why, why don't we I mean, listen to the audio of exactly that moment where the decision was made? Yeah. So, Dad resisted and uh, was pulling away, fighting from us. And so, Ann could OC him. I got OC all over me. Kid right now is only detained. He's in the back of my car. We've had a very lengthy conversation. He's been reasonable. I'm quite certain there's narcotics in the car, so I think I'm going to arrest him for the wide right turn. He's got a history of narcotics. He's, he's telling me, giving me all sorts of clues, so I think I'm going to arrest him for the wide right turn. The Puente case ended with the officer responsible resigning from the force and the department agreeing to a $200,000 settlement, but that was for assaulting Dylan's dad. The underlying arrest for a Class C misdemeanor in order to search a vehicle was both wholly legal and approved on the scene by a supervisor before it happened. And it happened to more than 64,000 people across Texas in 2019 alone. During the recent snowpocalypse week, there was an amazing and awful example out of Plano where a young 18-year-old black man was arrested for walking in the roadway while trudging through the snow on the way home from work at Walmart. 
Another example of police arresting for a Class C misdemeanor, the case received national attention and the Plano Police Chief later issued an apology. We caught up with State Representative James White, newly appointed Chairman of the Homeland Security and Public Safety Committee in the Texas House, and he brought up this case. This young man was, what, 17, 18? Is that Plano? That's right. He was walking home. It was snow. It was, it was cold. And I will tell you, I'll raise my hand up. When I was walking back and forth from my office, I did not walk on the sidewalk either. I was kind of walking in the street too. So it sounds like we're, but we're in agreement. That man is, or young man is mm-hmm. in Plano. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, 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 yes. So, so he shouldn't have been. So, so, um, we're watching it. Okay. We got to meet people where they are. Stop being so, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we got to meet people where they are. But I think that's, I think that's where, you know, because I'm listening to both sides, right? But we're going to get into committee hearings. We're going to we're going to get this out in the public in the public sphere. But look, we don't need to do fortuitous arrests. We don't need to be putting people in the county jail or municipal jail on taxpayer dollars in a in an inefficient way. We don't need to be doing that. We don't need to be doing in runs around the Fourth Amendment. Okay, so. What we have right now, though, is officer discretion. They don't have to arrest people. No, they don't. They don't. What we're seeing is 64,000 people being rounded up every year. And that's 64,000 people uh, with their liberty deprived. Exactly. Okay. So, so look, uh, yeah, we get the principle. We agree with the principle. and, and, And we agree with the approach. Okay, we'll get there. What were your impressions of that case? It was so strange that it's hard to know what the officers were thinking because clear he was literally just walking in the roadway. And they, I truly believe from their comments, felt like they were there to quote unquote help him. And then when he told them he didn't need their help, somehow this was an insult to their position in the world. And there were two officers, a, a, a male cop and a female cop. The male cop in particular, to me, it, it, it came off as a moment of toxic masculinity of some sort where, you know, what? I offered to help you and you didn't accept it. How dare you? <laughs> yeah, when it's sort of like, who wants to get into the back of a squad car? <laughs> yeah, with this domineering jerk who can't take no for an answer. Um, it was weird. It was, I, it, it, I don't know what your expectations are of people that, that this cop's walking around with, but clearly it was that he felt so high, he you know, thought so highly of himself that it was an insult to humanity to deny him the opportunity to, to, to provide assistance. You, I, I really feel like you could tell when they arrived, the cops from their stated intentions said they wanted to help. And it just turned in the opposite direction so quickly. Yeah. And with, with the kid on the ground saying, you said you were going to help me. And now you've got me <laughs> face down in the snow. What? It's just like, it, it doesn't make sense. I mean, and it, for what, what started as a welfare check. Yeah. This guy's walking in the street. He had a t-shirt on. You could understand why someone would be concerned that he get wherever he's going as quickly as possible. Although I, I don't personally believe that a white 
teenager would have had the cops called on him in Plano in the first place. I think that it's an example of someone in the neighborhood calling the police when they shouldn't have, and then also layered on top of that, police reacting poorly and not acting to restrain one another again when someone oversteps their bounds. As soon as the male cop escalated improperly, the woman did not turn around and say, no, this is inappropriate. You know, he didn't do anything. She backed the guy's play. She knew whose team she was on. And, you know, if there's a duty to intervene when an officer behaves improperly, she was not prepared to do that. Yeah. And so, you know, it gets back to that element of what's in the George Floyd Act. It's not just the Class C. It's like in the Puente case. These these examples are layered on top of each other. Multiple things that come into play in the George Floyd Act, you know, happen in one episode. It's never just one thing. Now, by the way, as we are talking about these individual case studies, it's worth mentioning that today, as we are recording this on March 1st, is the deadline for uh, law enforcement agencies to submit their racial profiling Mm -hmm. reports to the Texas Commission on Law Enforcement. And these only apply to traffic stops. They wouldn't apply, for example, to the Plano case. They uh, it, it's only when someone is pulled over. So it would capture mm. Puente, but not necessarily the, the Reese case out of Plano. But this, this data has given us the first window ever into these types of low-level arrests. In 2020, with so many people working from home during COVID, we saw a significant decline in traffic stops, about a third less than in 2019, with searches performed at 5.8% of stops, or about one out of every 17 times a driver was pulled over. Contraband was discovered in fewer than half of searches, and when it was, 70% of the time it was drugs or paraphernalia. Remarkably, three out of five times contraband was found, no arrest was made so most of those were probably pretty minor. Class C arrests were down too, but there were still more than 41,000 last year. Agencies reported using physical force resulting in serious bodily injury at traffic stops 5,141 times in 2020, with Houston PD having by far the highest rate among large agencies for the third year in a row. Finally, agencies reported more than 4,000 complaints at traffic stops in 2020, but agencies disciplined officers for only 10 of them. Five of those disciplined officers were at Austin PD. We're all, we're starting to get data on, on these types of arrest, on use of force, on this sort of stuff for the very first time. The interesting thing about 2020 data is that this was all mandated under the Sandra Bland Act, added to Texas racial profiling data collection. And then ironically, the Commission on Law Enforcement forgot to, failed to, made an error, and didn't include racial categories in the racial profiling data (laughs) for any of the new categories required in the Sandra Bland Act. And I've had long conversations with these folks. Why would you want to know that, Scott? I I believe they genuinely didn't do it as 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 an intentional undermining the law. It was just a mistake. They're genuinely embarrassed about it. It doesn't really matter. We've had to wait two extra years to finally get this data that that will have those racial breakdowns. That's all being reported as we speak. Yeah. So I'm I'm hoping that reporters start to dig into this new data. Um, it's a weird year for the start. first comprehensive year, but over time, this is going to turn into something that 
tells us a lot more about what police are actually doing in the field than we've ever known before. Right now, we just have anecdotes like the Dylan Puentes of the world and, 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 and like the poor kid in Plano. And, and so understanding the scope of what's going on is, I think, going to be helpful over yeah. time. And I think also the reporting requirements may have also contributed to the decrease. Um, you know, just, just letting people know that someone's watching it, you know, make, having people in the command structure aware that this is something that they're going to have to report and that maybe more stops isn't a good thing. Will can shape the behavior even subtly. So, absolutely. Now, I, I know. I know the actual physicists in the world despise this example, but um, but but I've always loved the the analogy, and I know it's fully just an analogy of like the uncertainty principle, where the act of measuring something, something in the world it. actually causes it to change position and so you can never know where exactly where something is or or rather the act of measuring it will alter its trajectory and i really believe that's what transparency does a lot of times with some of these public policy issues is the moment you can actually observe what's going on the act of observing begins to change how that activity goes on yeah and that's and, and and i believe that that's that's true of some of these these traffic interactions that have been incredibly opaque you yeah. know historically and it's also another reason why you know body camera footage should be open to the public i think one reason why you had so much misinformation circulating even within the keller police department is because no one was watching the body camera footage we would get so much more reform so much more quickly if body cam footage were public. We really would. Yeah. The police officers would just know. You would know, okay, I can't just randomly arrest somebody for something they didn't do. That's right. Right now, if there's not bystander footage, they know they're mostly never going to be held accountable. Yeah. And if they knew anyone could just access that body camera footage and anything they did while on duty, they could be held accountable for. It would be monumental. I truly believe that. I believe it too. And and I should say, you know, just, you know, in fairness, like our friends, the beloved James White would say, you know, most police officers are well-intentioned and do their job really well. And making this in, this footage available to the public is really just going to verify that argument. You know, it's not, we're not out to get everybody. We just want it. We want accountability within the system. Chairman James White framed the issue a little differently, dismissing the idea that these are isolated incidents and asking law enforcement to consider whether these arrests devalue their role in the public's eye. Isolated incidents. Well, 65, 64,000 incidents isn't isolated. That's 64,000 times, at least 64,000 people have had their liberty deprived. Now, obviously, we can dig in and find out which ones were because it was a fight around the corner. I get that. Okay. So what I would tell the law enforcement leaders is I don't want your role being devalued. I think you do important work. Um, I think when children look at you, you know, on the on the street corner and they look at that badge, that's a badge of a lot of a, just a lot of importance, Scott. And so that's what I would tell the law enforcement community. Um, 
I want to lift you up. You are being lifted up. I just don't want to see you devalued. I don't want to see your role being devalued. And finally, Scott asked Representative White about his opinion regarding the governor's proposal to make the Austin Police Department part of the state Department of Public Safety. Listeners will remember that Governor Abbott has been a bit outraged about the Austin City Council's decision to cut the police department's budget. And in response has decided that the city of Austin should no longer have jurisdiction over its own law enforcement. Let's hear Representative White's response. Well, let me ask you this one. Um, since you're, since all of a sudden you're in charge of the Department of Public Safety. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you're the man. The governor thinks he's in charge of that. Yeah. Well, that was my question because the governor had suggested that the Department of Public Safety should take over the Austin Police Department and that Austin wasn't doing a good enough job and had defunded the police. And so maybe okay. maybe Steve McCraw to be running the Austin Police Department. OK. And I was wondering if you thought that was a good idea. Well, this is what I think. Um, and, I'm, and, and, and a lot of this is distilled from comments from back home. Um, we'll, we have elected city councils, we have elected school boards, we have these elected bodies for a reason, okay? And um, uh, elections matter, and, and to some extent, voters in certain jurisdictions need to live with the decisions their elected people have. And, and so someone in Jasper or in Woodville or Newton or Lumberton may say, hey, look, I'm paying the freight for what I think we ought to be doing here as far as law enforcement and police in my city or my county. Um, why does why does my share of DPS need to go to Austin? OK, um, and I'm, I'm getting those questions right now. The governor has sufficient discretion to staff up in any part of the state if need be. We have mayors and we have other local leaders where if it's, a, if it's a disaster, if it's an emergency or even a spike in crime. My former um, colleague, Eric Johnson, he's called, he's got on the phone and said, hey, I need a little more investigatory help. I need a little bit more help here. And the governor repositions DPS uh, at the beck and call of local leaders. So I think there's enough discretion there. Uh, I don't know if we need to take over the Austin Police Department. Uh, if there is a, um, you know, if there's some event in Austin where you just may need to bring in more law enforcement to work the crowds, um, the governor has that authority now. Uh, those resources are there now. I am appreciative and I'm understanding that generally um, the Capitol complex and maybe some of the um, uh, the perimeter around the Capitol where you do have state offices and buildings, there may be a need at certain parts of the year or maybe all parts of the year to have a heightened DPS uh, role. You know, sitting down talking to DPS, Scott, you know, they're getting their threat assessments. They're seeing things. I get it. But... Uh, I think I think even back home, people would say, 
if, if the city of Austin has made some decisions, their people just may need to deal with it. Okay. I can choose not to go to Austin. And then if I'm coming to the state capitol, I know the governor has the discretion to staff up at the capitol. So um, that, that's sort of where I'm at on that. Um, and, and I see that happening around the, the capitol where we're staffing up for whatever reason. I think that's appropriate. Okay. But, but colonizing Austin... <laughs> Uh, but look, I'm, I'm, I'm sensitive to the governor's concerns that, yes, Austin is, it, it, it is the, the door to the state in many instances. Okay, I get that. Okay. And I would hope that uh, we can get to a situation where the state of Texas, that's the governor and the legislature, can sit down and 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 have a real constructive discussion with Austin and the city council and, and we can have a incubator or some type of exemplar on how to deal with homelessness in the state. So I think you got to deal with all of it, right, uh, Scott? Um, if, if Austin is, is the gateway, the doorway to um, our state, um, we need to work on this homeless issue. I mean, I'm walking up and down the streets of Austin and, um, you know, it needs to be dealt with. So, no, I don't think we need to do a full colonization of the city of Austin. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Finally, we spoke to Anthony Graves, an old friend and a Texas exoneree who has spent 18 years, I believe it was, in the Texas prison system before being proven actually innocent and is now an advocate for criminal justice reform and forensic reform and really is one of our better, more important advocates we have here in Texas. And we sat down with Anthony to talk about a pair of budget proposals at the Texas legislature, the House Appropriations Committee and the Senate Finance Committee are both meeting this week to consider the Texas Department of Criminal Justice budgets. And a number of different organizations have banded together to ask them to increase the budget for prisoner food and for treatment services. Right now, we don't, don't begin providing treatment until prisoners have already been paroled. Mm -hmm. And that decision has already been made. If they were to provide treatment on the front end, mm -hmm. we would have around 15,000 fewer people in TDCJ today. People are simply paroled and then wait for 18 months or so until they get out. And so... Both of these issues are up this week at the Texas legislature, and we asked Anthony to give us some insight on what this food budget issue means to people who are inside and what what kind of treatment prisoners really need in order to successfully reintegrate into society once they get out of prison. First of all, I, I say thank you for having me. And yes, I am the person to speak to on these issues because I went through them. I ate the food that we're talking about now. 
And because I ate that food, I just spent the last year in recovery from a major surgery because of the food that I had to eat. Right? I that found they found a big mass on my small intestine that I had to do a major surgery. They didn't even know if I was going to make it. I didn't. I kept that out the public. But for the last year, I've been recovering because of how I was living for 18 and a half years down there. The food that I was eating, the food is so disgusting. It's dehydrated. It's cold. It's overcooked. It's unsanitary. I mean, it's just all those things that would make you uh, uh, come out of there with bad health. Here's the deal. With this budget, they can allocate money toward food, better food, because you're going to save in the long run. Here's why I say that. Most of the people that's going to come home, if you don't allocate that money toward food and get them better nutrition, they're going to come home with all kinds of health problems that's going to cost you on the back end. You're going to spend more money on the back end dealing with their health than you would on the front end get the, getting them better food, more nutritious food. I mean, just take, for instance, when the guy when the guy who stormed the Capitol and they took him to prison, the first thing he hollered is he wanted organic food. Wasn't it? He had come in there and seen how bad the food was. And the first thing he was like, I'm going on strike. Okay. I'm not putting that in my body. Oh, organic food. Okay. I mean, what he was really trying to tell you is the food is bad in here. And if it was bad in there, I'm telling you here in Texas, it's unsanitary. I've seen things like a piece of rope, bread tie, a leg of a roach in your food. Food sit there in the, in the thing dehydrated for hours before they even serve it to you. It's just unsanitary. And uh, if we're really talking about saving money, then we will spend money on the front end so that we can save a lot on the back. Because you're going to have to deal with all these health issues that these people are going to have coming home from years of eating bad, unhealthy food. That's what I would say. I, I, I think that would be good money spent if you would allocate some of that money toward a more nutritious meal for these people that are going to come back into our community, right? As far as as far as other things, man, like like what we were talking earlier about the uh, treatment. Right? Yeah, tell me, tell me what you're you're someone who because as as someone proven actually innocent and who who got out under rather unusual circumstances, you didn't have to go through the whole being paroled and then wait until you finish some other treatment thing and wait around for 18 months the way some of these folks are doing. When you think about your reentry experience, what do you think folks leaving TDCJ need in order to successfully reenter society? What, what would have benefited you to be able to make that transition that maybe in retrospect you weren't provided or you had to find on your own? Well, I, I tell you what, I wish that there would have been a, a, a some sort of treatment, uh, unique style of treatment in place for me because uh, people don't know how much I struggled when I came home. I, I struggled a lot. I, I remember when I was compensated and everyone was happy for me and, and I bought a new car and I had a condo by the lake and everybody seen a smile on my face and thought I was doing great. But nobody was around three o'clock in the morning when I was crying. But I didn't think I could make it. Okay. I was dealing with PTSD. Didn't know it. Right. But lucky for me, I had a support system around me. So when I fell, I fell on a pillow. Most people are not going to do have that support system around them. 
And when they fall, they're going to fall hard and they're not going to be able to get back up. So what you have to do is you have to create, create something that prepared them before they get out. That's what I wish would have been in place for me. Something that could, would have prepared me to come back to a world that was totally different from when I left. Right. Just going to the store, using an ATM machine. I mean, just these things were uh, self-checkout. These things were frightening to me because I never, the world changed. We were in a digital society. I mean, I, I didn't know anything about uh, computers, uh, uh, phone, right? So we always, and, and I know that we look and, and everybody has the heart of gold and they want to try to help people. And we look at the big picture, how to get them on their feet. And a lot of times we just miss the small things, the small things that are so important to someone like me coming home. I don't see anything like that in place. And until we put something like that in place, we're going to continue to deal with a high rate of recidivism because people are not coming out prepared. They're coming out facing a world that's totally different than they ever met, ever knew. So we have to put something, a design system in place that will prepare them mentally, spiritually, emotionally, before they enter back into our society. Because if we don't, not only are we going to have a continuous high rate of recidivism, we're going to have a high rate of crime. And we don't want to be that person who leaves their window open only to find a stranger in it that we let out, that we did prepare to come out here and be a productive citizen. So we have to put a, something in place, a system in place that address those issues and prepare them when they come home. And then you have to also, as I say, you know, you, you got to spend good money toward good food, man, so they come home healthy. They're no good to us when they come home and they broke down. They're just a burden out to the system. Because you're spending so much more money on them now than you would have had you addressed this issue at the beginning. So I say, you know, address the food issue with this brother. Address a great program that you can put in place that will prepare people to come back into our society as productive citizens or looking to be productive citizens than, than just being broken and not knowing who to turn to or where to go and end up going back to our prison system. All right, we're out of time, but we'll try and do better the next time, which will be part two of our special podcast series on the Texas George Floyd Act. Until then, this is Scott Henson with Just Liberty. And I'm Amanda Marzullo. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. And a special thanks to Chairs White and Thompson for sitting down with us in the past week. We really, really appreciate your time. For sure. Thanks a lot, guys. George Floyd died saying I can't breathe. Thousands marched, the cops took a knee. But talk is cheap. What does it mean? Make it count today. Pass the George Floyd Act. Don't let it be for nothing. Pass the George Floyd Act. Let's make it count today. Pass the George Floyd Act. It's time to stand for something. Pass the George Floyd Act. It's time to have our say.